Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Pushkin. You're alone on a city street. The darkness is total. It envelops you, pressing in. You stumble on, not knowing where the sidewalk ends and the road begins. You brush by a darkened building, bump into an unlit street lamp. You're desperate to reach safety, for somewhere in this neighbourhood lurks a killer who strikes in the hours of darkness. The cruelty and viciousness of his crimes are unspeakable. This is not make-believe horror. This really happened, and it happened in living memory. Germany calling. Germany calling. You are about to hear our news in It's a tale you've probably never heard before. A tale of forgotten women murdered in a city without light. This is London. For a year and a half, its department stores and palaces, its churches and factories, its schools and homes have been blasted and burnt by waves of Nazi bombers. Darkness is the only defense against the Blitz. To make it harder for enemy aircraft to find the city, the lights have been dimmed. But the dark and dislocation of war also offers a serial killer cover to single out his victims. His prey are ordinary women who are just trying to make the best of things in London's bomb-damaged nightlife district. Hiya, babe. What you doing tonight? Ah, watching. Let's start in Piccadilly which locals boastfully call the centre of the world. For as the guidebook says, anyone looking for the high life must sooner or later find themselves in Piccadilly Circus. Welcome to the Brasserie Universelle. It's a favourite haunt of flyers. Men from the air forces of France, Poland, Australia, Norway, South Africa and a dozen other nations gather here to brag about the Germans they've shot down. 
or drink to the memories of comrades lost. Everybody either starts from here or ends up here, says one young Canadian pilot in a letter home. Soon, this subterranean joint will burst at the seams with American GIs. Flush with cash, they'll transform this area into what locals will dub Little America. But today, only a handful of Yanks are in town. For this is February 12th, 1942. It's a Thursday night, and a young woman called Greta Haywood has come to town. She's alone. Excuse me, are you waiting for somebody? The voice is an educated one, but perhaps a little affected, as if its owner is trying to adopt the diction of a duke or earl. Or maybe it's the effect of the drink. His breath carries the sour reek of watered-down wartime beer. He's a rather slight man of around five foot eight or nine, and he wears the blue wool uniform of a leading aircraftman in the Royal Air Force. On his cuff is a single stripe, a commendation for good conduct. Greta is waiting for someone. She has a date, she tells the stranger. Estranged from her husband, Greta's struck up a new relationship with a captain in the army. He'll join her here within the hour. You are a very nice girl. I've been looking at you for some time. Beneath the sweep of dark hair, the stranger has piercing pale blue eyes and rather sharp features that some consider handsome. You shouldn't come down to a place like this. It's not very nice down here. A place like this. The Brasserie Universelle is known by other names. Some call it the Universal Brasserie. Others refer to it simply as the Universal Brothel, to the annoyance of the owners. Any woman coming here alone is eyed with deep suspicion and assumed to be either a so-called good-time girl or a professional prostitute. Greta has allowed the stranger to buy her a drink, and he returns from the bar with two whiskies. She repeatedly declines his offers to take her to dinner, for her date will be here by nine. We have plenty of time. Eventually, she agrees to accompany the stranger to another bar for one more drink. The man retrieves his hat and winter coat from the cloakroom. He's no officer yet, but the white cotton flash on his cap shows he's in training to become a pilot, one of the most glamorous jobs in the armed services. They climb the steps up out of the brasserie and into the night. The streets here are busy, but Greta only hears the people around her, feels them bump past or glimpses the bouncing red tips of their lighted cigarettes. For Piccadilly Circus, once famed for its vast illuminated signs advertising Hague whiskey, Gordon's gin and Wrigley's gum, is completely blacked out. The headlamps of taxis and double-decker buses are also hooded, so only the tiniest chinks of light are visible. Many pedestrians have taken to carrying flashlights. As these darting glowworms pass, Greta might see the flash of a polished button on a military tunic. Or perhaps the fleeting silver shimmer of a fox fur coat. Such furs are de rigueur in Piccadilly. They're almost a uniform for the women who sell sex along this bustling thoroughfare. A visiting American serviceman remembered one particular woman in a fur coat. Underneath that, she didn't have any clothes on. True story. The airman leads Greta away from Piccadilly Circus to a cocktail bar, the Salted Almond. To her relief, this is no dark and sleazy dive. The bar is decorated in a brilliant shade of vermilion and it's spacious and well-lit. They sit at one of the round tables, far from the other customers, out of earshot. The airman doesn't remove his heavy outdoor coat as they drink two more whiskies. He seems keen to move on. Where do you live? Greta's home is 12 or more stops away on the subway. That's a long way. Don't you know anywhere around here that we can go? 
The airman clearly won't be satisfied with simply buying Greta a drink and walking her back to meet her captain. Are you a naughty girl? Inwardly, Greta bristles at the crude insinuation. But she answers simply, no. I'll show you something. The man reaches deep into his pocket and pulls out a fat bundle of banknotes. There's 30 pounds there. You see, I have plenty of money. 30 pounds is more than eight months' pay for this leading aircraftman. Greta repeats that she'll be late for her date with the captain. He asks if he could meet Greta again to show her a good time. Perhaps Greta doesn't want to anger this man in uniform. She reluctantly hands him a scrap of paper bearing her telephone number. She stresses that she's not interested in having sex with him. All right. If you don't want to, I can't make you. Do you know, I knocked a girl out once. It's cold outside, and in this quiet side street, it's Bible black. Greta realises this isn't the quickest route back to the Brasserie Universelle and her waiting date. But, perhaps to avoid enraging a clearly violent man, Greta follows his odd route without objecting. She does, however, take a flashlight from her purse to illuminate their path. You don't want to use the torch. He grabs the light from her hand and plunges them back into darkness. I want to kiss you goodnight. Aren't there any air raid shelters around here? Greta doesn't know, but she is certain of one thing. She doesn't want to venture into a secluded, unlit bunker with this man. He grabs her and steers her into a doorway, pushing closely up against her and kissing her. Come on. You've got to let me make love to you. He raises her skirt. Greta protests and pushes his hands away. The airman reaches up as if to cradle her face for another kiss. But instead, his hands knit around her throat. She tries to break free. You won't. You won't. Greta struggles to release the man's grip, but his fingers only tighten around her neck, cutting off the flow of air to her lungs and blood to her brain. You won't. You won't. Greta Haywood loses consciousness. You won't. You won't. I've been looking at you some time. Greta is not this killer's first victim, nor will she be the last. Over the course of just a few days in that chilly wartime February, women were attacked night after night on the blacked-out streets of London, in deserted air raid shelters, even in their own homes. In this series, you'll hear the stories of Evelyn Hamilton, Evelyn Oatley, Margaret Lowe, Greta Hayward, Catherine Mulcahy and Doris Joannet. From their birth to the moment when their attacker struck. I'm social historian Hallie Rubenhold. In the last season of Bad Women, I explored the case of Jack the Ripper by telling the famous Victorian story of the Whitechapel murders through the lens of the victims. The Ripper Retold was based on my book, The Five, but this new season of Bad Women springs from all new research. It's a mammoth task, so I enlisted the help of journalist and criminologist Alice Fines. I'd never heard of this case before, which was puzzling. The murderer, that airman, was especially brutal in his attacks on the women. And such cruelty usually ensures that a killer is remembered, even assigned a dark celebrity. But over the years, this particular story has been talked about very little, and the victims even less so. Why? To change that, and to restore those women to memory, we set about reconstructing their lives. We've mined the National Archives and sifted through thousands of yellowing pages. Police reports, witness statements, photos, fingerprint records and newspapers. We've even had an expert genealogist trace the women's family trees for clues. Weighing up all this material, I was struck by the fact that, on the surface at least, there's little to connect these victims. 
They range in age from their 20s to their mid-40s. Some were married, but others were separated, or resolutely single. Some sold sex. One was a highly qualified graduate, and another dreamt of a life on the stage. But there are a few points of connection, and these are illuminating. In wartime London, these women shared common experiences. They faced the same risk as men from the falling bombs, but the hardships and upheavals of the war often affected them disproportionately. War had turned the old social and moral order on its head. As a result, women like the ones in our story had new opportunities, but they were also viewed with suspicion and disapproval for trying to work, live and love as they pleased in a world in turmoil. The other awful point of intersection for these women was that they all found themselves isolated and alone, and that gave the airman with the affected aristocratic accent his opportunity to strike. You won't. In their moments of vulnerability, he beat and throttled them with his bare hands, robbed them of money and possessions, and then set about mutilating and defiling their bodies with anything at hand. From razors to kitchen implements, even their own flashlights. Unsurprisingly, the ferocity and sadism of these murders prompted the papers to liken him to a killer who had terrorised the city a full 50 years earlier. You're listening to Bad Women, The Blackout Ripper. Back in just a moment. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer, so they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. 
With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. In the decades separating the Whitechapel murders of 1888 and the Blitz, the lives of London's women had altered significantly. The women who were killed in 1942, the women you will meet in this series, witnessed huge changes in their lifetimes. The oldest were born as the Victorian era was ebbing away, and they entered adulthood as greater opportunities were becoming available to women. Greater legal protections were also being put in place, and while not perfect, these would have been unimaginable to the victims of Jack the Ripper. For example, these women could all vote. The war sped up some of the more positive changes for women. They entered roles in military and civilian workplaces that had been denied to their mothers and grandmothers. But global conflict also brought into stark relief many of the injustices and prejudices that continued to blight women's daily lives. The war saw male partners shipped to the other side of the world and, at the same time, a mass influx of young men from other nations. Amid this upheaval, women were accused of being bad mothers, unfaithful wives, sexual deviants, spreaders of venereal disease, gossips, even spies who were passing vital secrets to the enemy. In peacetime, men had often pestered, intimidated and hurt women with impunity. But the coming of war created new spaces where women were exposed to unwanted advances, determined sexual harassment, violent assault and worse. As we unravel the lives of those killed by the Blackout Ripper and other ordinary women who met untimely, unjust and violent deaths during the war, we'll glimpse a world far removed from the cosy myths of the greatest generation, a world where some women had as much reason to fear the men wearing allied uniforms as they did the enemy. This story will take us to many places, but at its centre is London's West End, the districts of Piccadilly, Hyde Park, Mayfair and Soho, places where the rich and famous, the great and the good, mingled with the poor and desperate, the deplorable and the vile. These were places of excitement and freedom, but also of degradation and danger. From diaries, oral history recordings, autobiographies and contemporary accounts, we've created a snapshot of these neighbourhoods and the people who frequented them. To understand the women at the heart of this story, we need to understand the problems and prevailing attitudes of the time to immerse ourselves in their world. So, let's explore London's wartime West End together. It's spring 1941. The blackout murders are nearly a year away and Nazi bombs have been falling for months now. Some nights, the area is spared. On others, it is mercilessly pummeled. In daylight, bustling Piccadilly Circus could be mistaken for its pre-war self. Well, almost. The famous winged statue of Antiros, the Greek god of requited love, has been taken down and stored away for safekeeping. His ornate perch, a fountain has been buried beneath sandbags to protect it from bomb damage. The plinth is covered in propaganda posters, encouraging citizens to buy government bonds to pay for ships, guns and warplanes, or to drive less to preserve precious rubber so that vital army trucks can have tyres. Britain is almost totally cut off from the world, and her cargo ships are being sunk by German submarines at an appalling rate. But despite rationing and shortages, Piccadilly's famed restaurants remain open, some offering meals every bit as luxurious as during peacetime. Mark's Cavani, the hotels are bustling too, 
just off Piccadilly Circus, in a grand sweep of buildings owned by the British royal family, is Oda Nino's. Good evening. Do you have any vacancies for the next... This 100-room establishment tries to win custom by bragging about the quality of its plumbing. We've a lovely room on the third floor. But adverts also make careful mention of the ample bomb shelter accommodation 40 feet below ground. Henri Joanet works as a manager at Odenino's. Approaching 70 years old, Henri should be enjoying retirement in the country. But his annuity from his native France collapsed when the war broke out. And so he's returned to London and to hotel management. His wife Doris, willowy and fair-haired, is 30 years his junior. She's defied his wishes and followed him back to the city. Doris has known poverty and she's determinedly carved out a better life for herself. Perhaps what she craves most of all is financial security and stability, but now it might all be slipping through her fingers. When she met Henri, he was one of her paying clients. He promised to provide for her and take her off the streets. When I married my wife, it was agreed between us that she would cease her mode of life and regain her respectability. Their early married years were comfortable, and they enjoyed some luxuries too. But Henri now fears that, with his diminished income, his wife is at risk of... Drifting back to her old life. Henri is working punishingly long hours at Odenino's, where he also lives, and his health and their marriage are beginning to suffer. Setting herself up in rented rooms... Doris will indeed take her financial situation back into her own hands. This will also, fatally, put her into the path of the Blackout Ripper. The West End boasts a concentration of shops to rival the greatest cities on earth, from the tiny, high-end tailors of Savile Row to vast department stores the size of an ocean liner. Despite the blitz, they've mostly kept trading. One correspondent from a regional newspaper is in Piccadilly to report conditions back to his rural readership. It looked exactly like old times. I saw the facade of a fine building seemingly untouched. Then you realised that you could see daylight through the windows from the outside and that the walls were all that was left. I saw an elegant establishment carrying on with tarpaulins slung across the open roof, glass out everywhere. When storefronts and windows are blasted away... Shopkeepers are keen to make a show of defiance. Business as usual, reads the sign on one shattered shop doorway. In fact, more open than ever. A sign outside another bomb-damaged shop admits, We never did like window dressing anyway. Not everyone can joke about the carnage. The writer George Orwell is crunching through West End streets littered with stone fragments and glittering with broken glass. He comes across some debris from a bombed-out department store. A pile of plaster dress models, very pink and realistic, looking so like a pile of corpses that one could have mistaken them for that at a little distance. The scene is utterly shocking to him. But what astounds him most of all is that passers-by seem utterly unfazed by the damage. To an astonishing extent, things have slipped back to normal, and everyone is quite happy in the daytime, never seeming to think about the coming night like animals which are unable to foresee the future so long as they have a bit of food and place in the sun. But the sun is setting now, and night approaches. Will the cover of darkness bring the bombers once again? The entrances to the Tube, London's subway system, begin to clog with shoppers and workers heading home. But others are seeking to reach the train platforms deep underground too for the tunnels have become a refuge to tens of thousands of locals. There are still too few official air raid shelters, and those that exist are often wretched, uncomfortable and unsanitary. And so, to the utter dismay of the authorities, nearly 200,000 Londoners prefer to bed down each night in the tube, with the trains rumbling by just inches from them. Worried Londoners, men, women and children, line up for a sleeping spot while rush hour is still on, despite official orders that they stay away. The patience of these waiting shelterers is wearing thin. 
Police officers are here to keep order amid a throng of anxious mothers and their wailing offspring. Whoa, 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 there's plenty of time. You can't go down yet. If we didn't stop them, some of these kids would spend half their lifetime underground. There are other officers in this ticket hall too, but they're not concerned with crowd control. Instead, they want to find someone and quickly. On the short side, Spread the word. Dark hair. Let us know if you hear anything. 47-year-old Rachel Dobkin is missing. Her sister Polly has been looking for her, and she fears foul play. Since Rachel's strange disappearance, Polly has visited a clairvoyant, and the mystic insists that something sinister and violent has occurred. Polly isn't just worried. She's also outraged. She thinks the police aren't taking the case seriously. So Polly calls in at her local station, has her lawyer send letters of complaint, and takes out adverts in national newspapers. The detectives think that Rachel's mental health history points to her having taken her own life. She's probably drowned herself, they think. But under constant pressure from Polly, whose mental health they now also question, their inquiries continue. So far, the only clue to Rachel's fate is her purse, which was discovered the day after her disappearance at a post office well outside the city. It contained her ID card, her rent book, and the ration coupons needed to buy essentials such as food. Also inside were two tube tickets, bought the morning after she was last seen. The police are asking staff at stations across London to cast their minds back. Can they remember a woman of about five foot three, her black hair greying, wearing a tweed coat with a brown fur collar, a navy blue skirt and a brown hat? No one can. As you'll hear later in this series, when Rachel is finally found, the prophecy of Polly's clairvoyant will prove more accurate than anyone could have predicted. Bad Women, the Blackout Ripper will return shortly. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. 
If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Not everyone is heading underground to shelter from the bombs. Some have grown tired of hiding away and are willing to risk enjoying the West End nightlife once again. There is no longer any excuse to be bored in London now. In fact, if you can't enjoy yourself in London, you must indeed be a poor prune. However, revellers attracted to the West End aren't universally admired. Isn't it callous to dance when the city is going up in flames? One serviceman on leave is disgusted by the scenes of merriment in a Piccadilly club. In his journal, he confides that he'd happily see the establishment and its customers blown to smithereens. The clubs and bars of London are the backdrop to the story of the Blackout Ripper and his victims, which is why I want to show you who frequents them, how those people are viewed by the rest of society, and exactly what happens inside. The Café de Paris is beginning to fill. Once the cabaret spot of choice for Hollywood stars and aristocrats, the war has injected a little egalitarianism into the clientele. Such a superb entry. A reduction in prices has helped. People like Greta Hayward and her army captain would now feel able to cross its venerated threshold. She had three martinis on an empty stomach. The star attraction is Ken Snakehips Johnson and the West Indian Orchestra, often billed as the only all-black swing band in Britain. They're seen as the height of glamour and sophistication and receive glowing reviews wherever they play. 26-year-old Ken is a key part of the allure. Though his role is ostensibly as band leader, Ken's grasp of music is basic. His real talent is dance. As his bandmates play, Ken will make a pretense at conducting them with his baton, but then launch into one of his trademark routines. He was so graceful in his white dinner jacket. His whole body was so electric and fluid as he moved it in time to the music. It was easy to see why they billed him as snake hips. The Café de Paris is several floors below ground, and many have been lulled into thinking that it is invulnerable to the bombs of the Luftwaffe. In fact, the club is known for its insouciance when it comes to air raids. When the sirens sound, Snake Hips Johnson tells the drinkers and dancers that they're free to seek shelter in the basements even deeper below the club. But if they do, they'll miss the time of their lives on the dance floor. In the skies high above the club, the crew of a German bomber lets go its deadly cargo. The bombs, specially designed to demolish buildings, hurtle earthwards, shrieking and whistling as they pick up speed. Even the keenest of ears would have missed their sound, for Snakehips and his orchestra have just launched into another number. A 110-pound bomb tears through the roof of the cinema above the Café de Paris, and it keeps going, 
slicing through floor after floor until it reaches the balcony right above the heads of Snake Hips Johnson and his guitarist, Joe Denise. I can't describe the sound. It just was oh, And everything went black. I tried to stand up. I thought I was uninjured. The next thing I know, I just fell down again. I looked down and saw a nasty mess where my leg had been. It was chaos. Screams and shouts and dust and dirt. Joe Denise is horrifically wounded. Snake Hips Johnson is killed outright. The oddities of bomb blasts mean that musicians to their left and right are entirely unscathed, while others have been cut to ribbons. Some dancers haven't so much as a hair out of place, but are stone dead. Others still have been stripped of their clothes, but have survived. Around 34 staff and guests are dead. An off-duty nurse does her best to help the many wounded. For aside from the bomb's own shrapnel, flying glasses and shattered wine bottles have inflicted terrible injuries on the revelers. The woman is hailed as a hero for her efforts. However, there is a telling postscript in an article printed in many newspapers. The young nurse had little to say about her work, but mentioned that while she was helping the injured, someone ransacked her handbag, taking from it objects of sentimental value, including a fountain pen. The selfless nurse has been robbed. Corpses, too, have been stripped of watches, wedding rings and jewellery. While the coming of war has encouraged some people to act with bravery and compassion, it's also created tempting opportunities for the more unscrupulous. In fact, the blackout is a boom time for criminality in London. Indeed, it will be an important thread running throughout this series. As the enemy bombers turn for home and the drone of their engines fades away, as the fires of burning furniture and burning floorboards and rafters are doused, as the dust of pulverised plaster, brick and stone settles, the task of rescuing the trapped, recovering the dead and reclaiming whatever valued possessions have survived must now begin. The bohemian and slightly seedy western neighbourhood of Soho has been battered in this air raid. Whole buildings have disappeared in the night and their remnants now block Soho's narrow streets. A rescue worker spots a miraculously undamaged bottle of whiskey in the rubble and recommends that the dazed and dusty homeowner takes a swig. She's not impressed. Here, leave that bottle alone. It's for emergencies. Unlucky residents stumble over the rubble and sift through the wreckage for salvageable clothing, furnishings, ornaments or other valuables. It's a race against time. For many dread that looters will swiftly descend to pick clean the bombsite. Some criminal gangs organise sophisticated looting operations. Teams of men arrive in trucks and swarm over a bombsite, carting away anything of value. So brazen and so methodical are they that onlookers sometimes presume they are official reclamation squads working for the property owner. However, such events are rarer than newspaper coverage would have us believe, and most looting is opportunistic and trivial. For serious criminals, the war has brought far easier and far more lucrative ways of making money than scrabbling around in the rubble. The conflict means that everything, from luxury goods to basic foodstuffs, is in short supply. Many items are rationed by the government, so even citizens with money to spare can't legally buy all the things they want. And so, black markets flourish, pulling people who might be scrupulously law-abiding in peacetime into the orbit of thieves and gangsters. Women are often drawn into the trade, for it's women who must feed and clothe their families. And if a husband is away in the armed forces, his pitiful rate of pay makes that task nearly impossible. If a wife tries to find paying work for herself, an abysmal lack of childcare options can mean the heartbreaking choice of leaving children in a less-than-ideal setting. In some cases, all this makes the pull of the black market trade hard to resist. 
In one court case, more than a dozen laundresses were charged with stealing army blankets and using the material to make coats. The thefts went unnoticed during the warm weather, but when temperatures dropped, the military authorities found they were 1,200 blankets short. What started as petty pilfering spread through the laundry women like a form of cancer, said the prosecutor. Soho is no stranger to the black market. With supplies of booze constricted by the war, bootleggers fill the gap with stolen, counterfeit, or simply homemade hooch. At one illegal still, discovered in the back of a cafe, colourings and flavourings were added to pure alcohol to mimic the look and taste of genuine spirits. Whiskey, gin and rum could be made so apparently perfect that only an expert could detect that they were synthetic. But many of those drawn to Soho are not merely thirsty for drink. We're in Soho's Windmill Theatre. This establishment has two claims to fame. One, the show here went on even at the height of the bombing, when many other theatres went dark. And two, it's the only place in town to see naked female flesh. It puts on a kind of glorified burlesque called Revue de Ville. Time magazine's Walter Graebner tells his American readers. For an audience composed mostly of bald-headed businessmen from the provinces. The windmill avoids the prudish censorship laws by arguing that its shows aren't pornography, but art. Like classical statues, the naked women on stage stand stock still. Any movement will break the spell and see the show close down for obscenity. Evelyn Oatley lives a few streets from here. For many years, her husband Harold has believed that she worked at the famous Windmill Theatre. I think it was in the chorus. While he lives hundreds of miles away in the country, Evelyn spends most of her time in Soho, pursuing the more glamorous life of a showgirl and nightclub hostess. She finds farm life and the chickens dull. And Harold wants her to have a freedom to enjoy a career that's exciting, but certainly not, as he puts it, immoral. Evelyn's London friends claim she has another occupation. She was earning her living by prostitution, says Gladys Barton. She was very honest, and when I say that, I mean, she'd never steal from her clients. In London, away from Harold in the farm, Evelyn has adopted an alter ego. As Lita Ward, she weaves a complex patchwork of relationships. Love, sex, money and the struggle for independence all exert competing claims on Evelyn, as they do on many women in this war. Her main problem was that she was lonely. According to Gladys, Lita has paying clients, with whom she also happily socialises. And she meets men in local clubs and bars or on the street bringing them back to her modest Soho dwelling. Until one night, when she brings home a man with an aristocratic accent. The radio gets turned up louder and louder until the neighbours can hear nothing but the music. So this has been your introduction to the worlds of women such as Greta Hayward, Dora Schwane, Rachel Dobkin and Evelyn Oatley. A world made darker and more dangerous by war. In the coming episodes, we'll look not just at the case of the Blackout Ripper, but also at the stories of other women who didn't live to see the victory parades and the peace. Women killed not by the enemy, but by husbands, by lovers and by strangers wearing the uniform of their own side. We'll find out who each woman was, explore the events that shaped her, and hear about the personal triumphs and tragedies, her longings and disappointments. We'll examine why they came to be in such deadly peril, and how society was often unsympathetic to their plight. In the next episode, available right now, we'll meet thoughtful and reserved Evelyn Hamilton, Intelligent, contained, perhaps inscrutable, some of the people she meets cruelly dismiss her independent spirit as mystifying, odd and annoying. Evelyn has spent most of her life living far away from London. 
a new job will see her stop in the West End, only briefly between trains. But that window of just a few hours will be long enough for her killer to strike. Bad Women, The Blackout Ripper is hosted by me, Hallie Rubenhold. And me, Alice Fiennes. It was written and produced by Alice Fiennes and Ryan Dilley, with additional support from Courtney Garino and Arthur Gompertz. Kate Healy of Oakwood Family Trees aided us with genealogical research. Pascal Wise sound designed and mixed the show and composed all the original music. The show was recorded at Wardour Studios by David Smith and Tom Berry. You also heard the voice talents of Ben Crow. David Glover, Melanie Guttridge, Stella Harford, Gemma Saunders and Rufus Wright. Much of the music you heard was performed by Ed Gocken, Ross Hughes, Christian Miller and Marcus Penrose. They were recorded by Nick Taylor at Porcupine Studios. Pushkin's Ben Tolliday mixed the tracks. And you heard additional piano playing by the great Barry Wise. Hi, Barry. The show also wouldn't have been possible without the work of Jacob Weisberg, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori... Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Eric Sandler, and Daniela Lucan. We'd also like to thank Michael Buchanan Dunn of the Murder Mile podcast, Lizzie McCarroll, Catherine Walker at the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, and the Earby Historical Society. Bad Women is a production of Pushkin Industries. Please rate and review the show and spread the word about what we do. And thanks for listening. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.